I was projecting a style that wasn't me because I was so young and immature that I wanted people to view me with respect and I wanted to claim the respect and I was the boss in the room. And I started to realize that style just doesn't work. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Sheila Lirio-Marcello. She launched Care.com, a company that transformed the caregiving industry, making it easier for people to find help taking care of kids, pets, and parents. And just seven years after Care.com launched, Sheila became the second ever Filipino-American to take her business public. Today, Care.com is worth almost $500 million and operates in 97% of all U.S. zip codes. Sheila was also one of the first female entrepreneurs to scale a company with VC funding. She's been intent on opening the door for other female entrepreneurs ever since. And now she's executive chairwoman of The Wing. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carly. Excited to be here. So happy to have you. Before we get into the conversation, we like to warm up with a lightning round so we get to know you better. It is quick questions, quick answers. It's the scariest part of this interview. Are you ready? (laughs) I'm ready. Okay. First job on your resume. Oh my gosh. Legal assistant as a teenager. Any secret hobby or skill? Gardener. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to ask you for tips. Are you an inbox zero person? Inbox zero? No. I would say I still have 10,000, but I try and really limit my time on email. So I triage. Okay, good. You and I are going to get along great. That's how I do it. (laughs) Finish this sentence. What best describes your workday? Working nine till? Working 5 a.m. to sometimes 11 p.m. What is your go-to takeout food on a busy weeknight? We love sushi. What is the last show you binge watched? I watched a documentary called the PBS Asian American Series. How does taking time to slow down fuel you to move forward? I love it. I meditate regularly and I also do cold showers, plunge baths, and steam showers as a way to slow down. I read in preparing for this that you are a fan of superheroes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you could be one, who would you be? I wish there was a version of Superwoman. And finally, what is the last text that you sent? The last text I sent on my phone was in WhatsApp with a crypto developer that I am advising and coaching. Very cool. Okay, I'll I'll take that advice. All right, let's get into it. Okay. (laughs) There have been a few big life events that shaped your career from being an undergrad and realizing you were going to need childcare to having to do the same thing all over again when you were at Harvard Business School. Can you take us back to, you were 20 years old and a full-time student. Where are you in life and what was the moment when you realized there's an issue here? Well, as a student, I 
was very ambitious. I was born and raised in the Philippines, so I came here for college and I grew up with designated professions. There were six of us in the family. There was going to be the doctor, the dentist, you know, the engineer, accountant, and I was the fifth. I was supposed to be the lawyer. And this was prescribed since I was three years old that I was going to go to law school. So as a 20-year-old, I always thought that I would go to law school. I would uh, go into investment banking or consulting as the start of the career. And then I got pregnant between my sophomore and junior year. was not expecting that. And so I struggled to find care. I married my husband and our older son, Ryan, who's inspired us with Care.com, is now 29 years old. But at the time, my husband's parents were deceased. And my parents were in the Philippines, so we didn't really have a lot of options for care. And we both wanted to complete school. He was going to Yale University. I was going to Mount Holyoke College. And so we needed care. And it was difficult. And it didn't dawn on me until I did my JD MBA at Harvard. And in the last year of the program, got pregnant again. Uh, somehow school does that to us. So we're like, maybe don't go to school anymore because <laughs> we'll ever end up having another surprise baby. So when Adam was born, we both wanted to jump into the internet and we didn't have great care for him. So I begged my parents to come from the Philippines to care for Adam. And while my father was carrying him up the stairs, ended up falling backwards and had a heart attack. So at 29 years old, I was sandwiched between childcare and senior care. Most people are sort of in that 40s before they experience that, that I did. But Carly, I was working in the internet. I was working at a company called You Promise Saving Money for College for Families. And yet I was using the yellow pages to look for care. So something was off for me. I knew that I wasn't the only one. I've heard it from friends. And soon as I peeled the onion, I realized millions of families struggle to find care. So long answer to your question, but it was all in my 20s when I went through this experience. So the impression I got from researching for this interview, and to correct me if the impression is wrong, is that you are somebody that studies a lot for what you don't know and takes your time before jumping in. Is that fair? Yes, that is very fair. So you had this idea for care.com, seeing kind of this white space because of your own personal experiences, but you had this idea for a long time before actually starting the business. That's right. I want to understand, because I think you painted a really clear picture of sort of where you were in life and kind of sandwiched between the two needs of what the business ended up solving for. But what was the kind of mental exercise that you went through of like, okay, here's this idea. Here's all the stuff I need to learn. How did you go about getting that experience or skills? Yeah. So the personal motivation was very proximate to what happened to me as a crisis in my life, both my husband and I. The professional route took longer, even though that passion was there. I certainly studied a lot in school and then decided to do strategy consulting. I knew that I wanted to be in the family space, but strategy consulting challenged me to critically think and solve problems of any kind. And I was starting to think about going to business school instead of going to law school, which is why I wanted to get a job to expose me more to business. So I ended up going to law school, listened to my parents. I got into Harvard Law. And then I decided to get my MBA as well at the same time, which was a juggle with children. 
but I was so passionate to learn about entrepreneurship. And I knew that I didn't have the language to do business, even though I'd been around my parents as entrepreneurs, I didn't have the skills. So I studied business and I combined the two and I started taking classes, one called Women Building Business, and then another course called Information Age Businesses. (laughs) Do these two courses still exist? (laughs) They do not. They do not. No. (laughs) And I became a research assistant to both and fell in love with my professors, Linda Applegate and Myra Hart. Myra Hart being the former CEO of Staples and was such an inspiration. But anyways, in taking those courses, I started to realize I was invited by HBS to come teach. And I was grading internet business plans. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, wait a minute, I'm grading these papers, these business plans. And I know the language of business plans, but I've never been an operator in the internet. And this was in the late nineties. So I decided to join a company. I started from scratch, became a product manager. I remembered 70K, I believe, was the entry-level position at the time. Even though I had this huge debt with my JD MBA program, instead of trying to push for a title, I decided, wait, for the first time in my life, I'm getting paid to learn versus paying grad school tuition and undergrad. So I was super excited, even with a low paycheck, even though we had a family. And I learned from scratch, writing product requirements, learning the internet, CTO and the management team there at Upromise believed in me enough that they invited me to manage a technology team, taught me a lot, and then eventually gave me the responsibility to manage the user experience, marketing, PR, brand. So then the combination of learning to build a product and a great user experience was a really awesome experience. So when I was leaving Upromise, I was itching to start a company, but we had a few things going on in my personal life. My husband's brother passed and it was really difficult on my husband. And one of my mentors said, well, why don't you take the skills you've learned at You Promise and do it one more time at another company? And that'll allow you to also manage work-life balance given you guys just had a death in the family. So I joined another company where I inherited a team, was the GM slash COO of the company. And that allowed me to really test my leadership skills around influence because now it's not a team I grew, it's a team that I inherited. So it was a really good learning experience for me around motivational leadership and what do you need to do there? And I need to adjust my style. I did that for a year. And then eventually I was invited to join a matrix partners, venture capital firm to be an entrepreneur in residence. Carly, I didn't even know what that job meant, what that title meant. People still don't know what it really means. <laughs> it was, I guess, a compliment that they're inviting me to pay me to write my business plan and to fund care.com. So to your question around the journey, is the journey of learning functional skills, learning to build things, learning the language of business, and and definitely laws always applied in everything that I've done, as well as learning leadership and management and motivation and influence. So it's been a journey of learning. I'm struck by in the journey that you just described, it seems to be there's a theme of people noticing how smart you are. And giving you opportunities that at the moment in time are kind of a stretch for you, like managing a tech team when you're like, that's not my skill set, appointing you entrepreneur in residence before you had started something. What do you think you were communicating to people that in hindsight, it seems like they were pushing you along the way? I definitely think it's a few things. And I've still been described like this today. There's a sense of curiosity 
and an openness to learning. And I think that comes with a sense of humility of just wanting to go deep and learn. This was an earlier question that you have of different areas and leaning on other people that you don't have all the answers because so much of leadership is actually more facilitation than it is having all the answers. So people tend to see that. I also think that the people skills matter a lot of treating people at all walks of life. People in my life, and I certainly am, I'm, I'm observant about the smallest things. If I'm starting a new company and interviewing a co-founder, and I pay attention to everything from how did he treat the wait staff? You know, it's all these little things that matter in building culture, because to me, respect matters a lot, not just brilliance. So I tend to observe things like that. And I think people observe that of me. You know, am I someone that people could feel like they could work with, collaborate with, problem solve with? And I think those are all traits that I try and encourage for people to grow. And so I've had the privilege of working with people who have sponsored me that also role model that. And so I tend to want to affiliate with other people who not only lift me up, but who lift others up. And that I can learn from on the value that we share about helping people. So you start Care.com. You are CEO, but you are not like a seasoned manager of big teams. No. So we talk a lot about management on the show. And we talk a lot about it because Danielle and I had never managed anyone other than an intern before starting the skim. And then all of a sudden you have a team just like... Walk us through a little bit. How did you figure out how to become an effective manager? Definitely with the help of people and friends. You know, I remember you promise after my JD MBA, Carly, I was very intense in my style on deadlines. And I remember going to a meeting where I met with a team that reported to me and the deadline was that day. And they said they needed another week. And my style was not understanding. I was sort of in this go, go, go with my own life. And I remember uh, CTO Dave Andre and my lifelong friends and the CFO who cared deeply about me, took me out to lunch and said, you are getting in your own way of your success because people don't want to be around you. And I was really shocked by that. I owe them to this day They said, we know you one-on-one and it's not like you, but somehow you're a different person. And what had happened, Carly, was I was projecting a style that wasn't me because I was so young and immature that I wanted people to view me with respect and I wanted to claim the respect and I was the boss in the room. And I started to realize that style doesn't work. You know, here I am a nurturing and loving mother at home. Why can't I bring who my whole self is to work without being insecure of being respected, especially being an Asian woman. And at the time I was younger, petite. (laughs) So I just decided I was just going to work towards being myself and being my authentic self, even in the work environment. And I decided also that I could both be intense in outcomes, but be chill with people and just start to change my mindset and frame around people leadership skills. And then I I went on a journey of self-reflection and meditation and journaling. I hired a coach you promised was kind enough in my early career at 29 because they catapulted me to be on a management team with late 40, 50-year-olds. And I was immature and I needed to learn. And so 
Barry Carden, who has always stayed in my life, became my coach for over 20 years. And I ran a lot of things by him around how to be a better leader, how to be a better person and integrate my life, what we call a corporate athlete, because so much of it is that if you don't take care of yourself, you're not a great leader. So a lot of self-reflection, Carly. What was the worst management mistake you made? Oh, gosh. There was an employee who was really upset, a designer whose design was copied by a competitor, a little tiny competitor of ours, and even used a stock photography. And he went out into the social media space on Twitter and critiqued with foul language the competitor. We met as a management team and decided to fire him and let him go as an example. But yet the way that he actually behaved after with remorse and said an apology out into the public sphere I decided to change my mind and I went in front of the whole company and I said, you know, sometimes people make wrong decisions. And one of the most important things for me to share with all of you is that we can't be a culture based on fear and we can't be a culture based on that if we make mistakes, that we don't try and get up and support each other. There wasn't anything illegal. And I think the way that he handled it made me realize I could be a better leader and how I handled that. And so I went in front of the whole company. I think it garnered support and understanding that we were going to build a company that was based on authenticity and being human and understanding. As CEO at, at CARE, what do you think you were really good at? And what do you think you were not as good at? Where did you need the holes to be filled? Let me start with realizing that even though I came from a product management background from the get-go, I needed a technology partner who was brilliant and then realized too that we needed marketing savviness. I knew enough about marketing, but going deep, Zenobia Muchala came in to join us. And then operations, somebody so focused on the detail of the customer experience, and that became Donna Levin, incredible co-founding group. And so when you're forming companies, you have to realize where your strengths are and where your holes are. As an example, Donna was incredible at building culture. She was much more patient than I was. And sometimes I'd had to take deep breaths to learn patience. I told you this is a journey that I've been on. She, on the other hand, had incredible patience and managing teams of hundreds of people. And so you realize that surrounding yourself with that kind of talent will advance the company. Where I was good at was identifying talent, motivating talent. I became an excellent facilitator. I think a large majority of the job is really that more than, again, as I said, coming up with the ideas probably helped that I taught a little bit at Harvard Business School. I realized I love working with talented people and getting their ideas out and listening and coming up with a concept that we all built together and that we own together. I get excited by that. And some leaders prefer that the ideas come from them. A little, you know, Moses with tablets from the mountain coming down. And I've never really wanted to build a company that way. I think it's important to really question and probe your own ideas and to make better ideas with a whole team. In Silicon Valley, especially, there is a commonly heard phrase that's almost parodied at this point, move fast and break things. Yes. That does not appear to be what your leadership style was, but yet you built a very, very successful company. 
how did you reconcile external pressure, whether it's from the outside world, from venture? I'm sure your peer set was also moving fast and breaking things. How did you reconcile that with your steadier approach? I could definitely slow down with people, but I was very intense in outcomes. So we did move fast. And the way we did that was test and learn. No idea was a bad idea because we built a platform that allowed us to test very quickly and then iterate, iterate, iterate. And breaking fast, meaning, hey, if the test didn't work, move on. Let's go for it. What we were really good at from the beginning is we put a lot of systems in place for people management and performance management from the get-go, from day one. So that we could get out of the way and focus the team on creating the product and solution, as opposed to constantly trying to solve problems around people-related issues. We put a lot of systems in place. So that we were very deliberate and intentional. I don't know that you call it slow, but we definitely decided that people systems and processes had to be put in place so that we could make everybody's lives efficient so that they could move fast. So I do think what happens sometimes in startups is you don't invest in that early. You think, oh, that's big company stuff. I don't really need to focus on people systems. Maybe my VP of people, I can hire five years from now because I could go figure this out. Everybody can swim on the ocean on their own and figure it out. (laughs) I actually think not investing on the people side early and having systems and clarity of roles, responsibilities, performance measurement, making that systematized. I think creates challenges for companies that slows them down and things do break quickly. You ended up stepping down from care.com after a Wall Street Journal investigation found there were serious problems when it came to vetting caregivers advertising their services on the website. Walk me through that moment when you were like, this is my baby, but like I need to step down. Yeah, the challenge, Carly, is media sensationalized and it's always it's always easier to judge from what you're reading on the outside of what really was going on around a decade of running care.com i started the conversations with a board whether somebody else should scale the company because i'd already hit a decade but the reality was we were still going through a mobile transformation and so the board said could you handle it i sent them a plan and i said okay i promise you let me get through this transformation and then i took red eyes back and forth to California to build a new team and Capital G had invested. And I remember telling our new investor that looked her in the eye, I said, I want to make sure your investment, I'm accountable because you just invested and we were public. So I took care of that. The company started to scale back up. We fixed mobile, hired a great team and I hit my 13 year mark. And this was December, 2018. And I started the conversations again with the board. And at that point, the Wall Street Journal was starting to approach us and wanting to talk to me. And I did end up taking the interview, but I was already having those discussions. And so when I briefed the board, they said, well, you're the founder. You should see us through the crisis. What was really sad is that the Wall Street Journal article at the very beginning was about twins dying that the reporters found. And at the very end, if you read through the entire article, the caregiver was not found on care.com. And yet that was the opening. And so I decided to take my whole team, create a war room. And our response to that, I said to them is, listen, twins died. It does not make sense for us at all to go out to the media to try and defend ourselves. We have always had safety from day one. We have invested in safety. Our mantra in the company 
has been that we need to feel comfortable using it for our own children and families because we're serving families to use it. So we need to be able to, and we found our own nannies and everybody in the company. And so we should feel secure about what we've done. But now let's take it a step further. What could we do more? A very dear friend of mine, David Bradley, who is one of my board of advisors in life, said to me, when things like this happen, the thing to own is to actually overwhelm with your response. And he said, that is what you're doing. You intuitively figured it out that what was important was what mattered to our customers, what mattered to our families, what mattered to our shareholders. Instead of going out there and being defensive, I said to the team, what more could we do? We've already been doing these things, but now how do we become better? And that's what we did. We then announced that we're investing significantly more, not because we didn't do any safety. We actually did. We made our background checks even better. The industry was describing what they did as background checks, but in our mind, that was actually screening. And we then decided, no, we're going to create a new standard of background checks. We did all that in place even before our IAC bought the company. And I think where I shocked the board, Carly, is that after all of this, I decided to announce that I was stepping down and the board wanted me to wait a year, at least distant from the crisis, but I wanted to be authentic to myself and my family. And so because it was so proximate, we had just gotten through the crisis and two months later, I bumped exec chair. The media immediately said, well, that's the reason she left, which is not true. But of course, again, it's just not me to try and figure out how do I go back and defend myself? It's like, I'm true to myself. I know why I did what I did. You have since started as executive chair for The Wing, which is the female-focused co-working business. The Wing's reputation has infamously taken a major hit over the last two years. Why would you take this job? (laughs) What was so memorable to me, Carly, is about three or four years ago, I think The Wing had just opened Soho, and I got invited by the founders to sit down with them. And I still feel it. I went in and I had this feeling of belonging. And it was just this moment that I was like, oh my God, this is like my people. This is amazing. Obviously, I was still really busy running a public company, but I always envisioned that the wing would be massive and hit sort of global scale. And I think having gone through my own journey of how care.com was misunderstood, I started to realize when I met with the two founders that you can grow and learn and come back. And the key thing is, are you working with people with integrity and are they willing to learn and grow? And my belief in that is solid, that Audrey Gelman and Lauren Kasson had that commitment to learn and grow in their life and how to serve, right? Because the mission of why The Wing was started was to serve women. That heartbeat is still there for both of them. Audrey has since moved on. Lauren has been exceptional, has reopened, and I've been there to support her. And that drumbeat is still there with how we feel that the wing can serve women all over the world. So for me, there's a pay it forward that I felt that if I could take my passion, my background and experience to help serve and touch more lives through other leaders, that's the reason. I continue to feel super excited about the wing. Part of the wing's crisis that they went through is when former employees came forward about underpaying and discrimination against LGBTQ workers and workers of color. How have you helped steer them through that? Because it's been more than a PR crisis. What it sounds like is really an internal one at that. So how have you used your experiences at care.com to help re-steer the ship? 
Well, I think with the pandemic, there was already a natural set of quiet moments in time to be self-reflected. In fact, Lauren actually started focus groups even before the pandemic and was flying around the country to listen, to better understand. The wing had grown so fast that people's systems processes that if you don't do it in the beginning can come back to break things. And so if you're moving too quickly and not prioritizing those things, I think the wing did experience that. And so part of Lauren was really going around and better understanding what could we be doing better? Again, there is a sense that I have around learning and growing and the authenticity and commitment that you have to diversity. So we've set up an advisory board at the wing made up of diverse women who report directly to me to give us feedback both on membership and how our employees are treated. It allows the employees also access through either our advisory board or to me to ensure that I'm listening to how the culture is being developed at the wing and what kinds of systems and processes and what kinds of culture code do we put in to really value diversity. So we did put a lot of those systems in place now. We're super excited. We work very closely with IWG, which is a global organization as well in helping us ensure that we scale because we're also planning to open the wing in multiple locations. So the diversity is going to be important, not only in the U.S., but the diversity across geographies is going to be critical. So if you're not putting those things in place for scale, things will break. I believe that that is important is to invest in systems, processes, people, culture, values, setting those things from the start. We have a quick question for you from one of our listeners. This is from Tanya. Thank you, Tanya. Some managers, especially new managers, have a tendency to micromanage. What is your best advice for managers to help themselves avoid doing that and best tips for employees if they feel they are being micromanaged? Yeah. The reason for micromanagement is a sense of lack of confidence in either the ability of the person or a security in yourself as a manager. And the reason I I say that is I think accountability of why your micromanagement has to go both ways. Because I think a micromanager will defend and say, the reason I'm asking all these questions is because I'm struggling with the performance of the employee. I always start by saying, what am I contributing as a manager to the problem? Am I micromanaging? Why? Let's unpack that. Is it because of my own insecurity? Is it because when I was younger in my career at You Promise, is it because I want to be viewed as the manager that that's more important than it is around the performance of the individual? That's a selfish reason. That actually isn't your goal as a manager. Your goal as a manager is to lead someone on your team, advance and succeed to create better outcomes for the team. So really probe, like, what are your own motivations? Is it your own insecurity that's driving that? And I actually think that frame will start to change how you view things around whether you need to micro. I always say to people, you get out of a meeting, did you impress or did you inspire? What was your true motivation? I remember my coach, Barry, would say to me, you said that in a meeting. Was it because you needed to say it for yourself? Or is it because you did it for the team? So you got to really ask, where are you accountable before jumping into someone's lack of competency? If you're on the receiving end of micromanagement, which I certainly have, I've had boards, I've had different managers myself, I engage in the conversation to say, what level of information 
How could it be helpful? And if they're micromanaging, I then inundate them with lots of information. I'm always prepared with a deck that has the info summarized because you don't want to feed the beast of micromanagement by then looking like you're not succinct. And then in my appendix, I have all the things they could ever ask for to support the data. After a while, they get really tired of it. They're like, oh, you're very transparent. You share all the information. It's all there. There's no issue. Sometimes the issue is transparency. And I make it very clear. It's all here. It's in a Google Doc. You can get it whenever you want. I feel secure that the information that I'm providing is available to you. There's no issue here. And sometimes as an employee, you withhold information because you feel the security that the information is what advances you. What advances you is your leadership and outcomes, not this little itty bitty set of information. Sheila, our last question, who else should we have on this show? Oh gosh, my friend Marla Blow. I love Marla. Love Marla. And another great one is Lisa Skeet Tatum. You and I like the same people. Thank you for those racks and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.